Today's episode of Tech Talks on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Tech Impact, focused on unlocking prosperity by embracing technology. For more, head to techimpact.it. It's Kathy Simpson here, and welcome to, or if you're a regular listener, welcome back to Tech Talks, our Tech Impact podcast, where we talk about great things that are happening here in Atlantic Canada. Today is episode number 26, and we're in our second show of our diversity series. And my guest today is Catherine Lockhart, CEO of Propel. For those who may not know, Propel is an Atlantic Canadian organization that offers an online accelerator to technology startups. Catherine is a breath of fresh air. I've known her now for nearly a year since she moved back to New Brunswick, and it's fantastic to have her part of the tech scene in Atlantic Canada. In this episode, she'll share with us her adventures growing up in rural New Brunswick, Bath to be exact, where there were lots of potatoes to be farmed, and I loved learning about her curiosity, her tenacity, and love of a good challenge. She'll also talk about her time at UMB and at Harvard, living in Canada and Europe, and what it was like to fail miserably at her own startup and all the benefits she received from those learnings. As you listen to Catherine, I'm sure you will gain a huge appreciation of why she's the right person to be the CEO at Propel right now. You'll learn loads about the great work that is happening with her and her team and I won't forget any time soon when she really talked about Propel is where founders become leaders. Oh, and you'll learn a little bit about baby unicorns. By the way, a unicorn is a company with a billion dollar valuation. She likes to talk about these baby unicorns and hopes that her team can be part of helping to build lots of them here in Atlanta, Canada. And of course, she's got a thought or two about the importance of diversity and why it's a priority at Propel. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson. I'm your host and happy to be here today with my guest, Catherine Lockhart. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. So I want to start off by letting our listeners know a little bit about who you are, where you're from, those sorts of things. And you are a native New Brunswicker. I am. I was born in Saskatchewan, to be fair, but really grew up. My roots and memories are all in New Brunswick. So delighted to be here and be back in New Brunswick after being away for about 16 years. So when did you get back? When did you come? All that stuff. Saskatchewan might have been where you were born, but we think of you as a New Brunswicker, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and I grew up in a little village called Bath, um, where potato picking was sort of the main industry, still is. Um, picked a lot of potatoes back in the day where school was actually uh, paused so the children could help with the potato harvest and really learn the value of of a dollar because we got paid a dollar a barrel my father would tell you he got paid 25 cents a barrel so (laughs) so you know times were very favorable for us when we were picking potatoes um and yeah had had a really great fortunate childhood with three siblings and I won the lottery in terms of parents who were forever supportive and and in a small community we you know we were exposed to a lot of things that you might not imagine having so many opportunities in a small community, but there's also not a lot of competition to join things as children. So you're in 4-H and we did Highland dancing and you're involved in sports and music and all kinds of stuff. So it was a really great childhood uh, in New Brunswick that I'm really, really fortunate to, to have had. And uh, I think my siblings and I are all really grateful for that. You know, I grew up in a town of about a thousand when everybody was home and it was the same thing. We were always excited if there were new school teachers because maybe they would come with a skill like bring gymnastics or dance or something to the community. And they did that all the time. So, yeah, I, I totally understand. And, you know, I lived up in Grand Falls for about a year and a half when I worked at MBTEL and the potato break was still happening there. 
yeah. in that time. So that was like in 1993, 94. So I'm very familiar to yes. the stoppage in school for a little bit so that the potato harvest could happen. What were you curious about when you were a small girl growing up in Bath? Everything. Uh, everything. I was always curious about the rest of the world. How does the rest of the world live? And got a travel bug early on. I went on a was fortunate enough to go on a Highland dancing trip to Ireland when I was 11 <laughs> and got a little bit of a taste for what it's like uh, to travel and, and traveled a bit with our uh, family. So I was always curious um, about exploring and learning and seeing other parts of the world. Um, I was always drawn to really challenging things. I love sports. I loved music. Um and we're very fortunate to, to grow up in a family where our parents really never said no. If we wanted to try to play the tuba, they were like, okay. <laughs> so we got a lot of support just venturing into new things all constantly. Um, sports was a huge part of our upbringing. We could play whatever no one said no to us in terms of what sport we could could not try. So we, so we did so. Um, and I was always drawn, you know, I played on the, Brunswick provincial team so I was always drawn to the challenging side of things mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily um, competitive very competitive but I'm, I'm perhaps competitive with myself um, mm-hmm. so really pushing the limits I guess in terms of just sticking your neck out there and if you're going to play basketball why not reach for the stars and you know I wasn't I wasn't a rock star and I'm obviously not playing basketball today so but at the at the time I, I was sort of wired that way like let's yeah. just reach reach out as reach, much as you can. Yeah, reach out reach out from Little Bath, New Brunswick, but reach as far as you can. Yeah. So how did you decide what we were going to take at university? Because you were a UMB grad. We'll start there. Uh, it was sort of almost a, a choice that chose me in the end. I've, because I was always drawn to challenges or different things, I've never, ever seen myself in a mold. Um, I, I was exploring science options and then UNB's Renaissance College was new, brand new. And they were they had had uh, their first class start the year before or when I was in grade 12. So I was brand it was brand new and I actually through playing basketball knew one of the uh, students who was in the first class. We had played basketball together and I heard about this program in leadership and I was like, wait a minute, that sounds really interesting, really unique, really challenging. So I was actually offered a full scholarship to the Royal Military College ROTC program in Kingston and turned it down um, because I thought, this is, I have to say yes to this leadership opportunity. And I, was, I, I had hoped to leave the province, but this opportunity was to, I couldn't, couldn't walk away from that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Renaissance College? Because it's a little hidden gem for some at UMB still to this day, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's been around, I think we're going on about 20 or 21 years of the (laughs) program. And it's incredible. It takes sort of a four-year degree squished into three years. You get to go all year round. You do a summer internship in Canada and an international internship in somewhere abroad. So I spent my first summer working at UMB in the marketing uh, department, which was my first taste of business. Um, at first real, where I really got excited about, wait a minute, this is actually pretty cool. And uh, then spent a summer in the Dominican Republic where, you know, lived in a third world country. Like I had machine guns pointed at my head and yeah. you learn in Spanish and you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Like a real... Um, eye-opener, culture shock. It's like holding a mirror up and going, wait a minute, the rest of the world is very different than Canada. You've, you've, you know, automatically you're born in a privileged position if you're born in Canada in many cases, and that wasn't the case in the Dominican Republic. So really intense experience, but a good one at a good time. Yeah. Did you have a sense while you were doing your degree what you wanted to do when you were finished after three years from a career perspective? I had no idea. I went into university thinking that medicine might be in my future. Um, I think everyone in my family is in medicine in some capacity, except for myself. And I have a few aunts and uncles who aren't. But 
many, uh, many folks in medicine. And so I took science as a minor. And what it taught me, though, was that I, I really embraced these internship experiences and being exposed to great leaders like Susan Michaud at UMB really opened my eyes to things that I was quite naturally drawn to, which was, you know, stepping out of my comfort zone and connecting with people on another level. And I'm sure medicine could have done that as well, but it was really, I was just drawn to it. Um, So, and then the international internship in the Dominican Republic definitely made me realize how fortunate I was to be going to UMB. And I said, if I'm going to make an impact in the world, I'm going to aim for the stars. It's sort of how I've always been wired. So I thought, why not apply to one of the best schools in the world? So I did. I was like, the worst they're going to say is no. <laughs> um, so I, I got in, accepted into uh, to do my Harvard MBA. And I think I've been told um, I'm the youngest person to ever have gone there. So did you, before you applied to Harvard, firstly, it's a three-year degree. Mm-hmm. So you're probably feeling a little young finishing your degree because it's jam-packed in three years. And then you're thinking, I'm going to go off to the U.S. to one of the most prestigious schools in the world, and I'm only 21. One. I could just drink in that country. Yeah, you are are young. And by the way, I have a summer internship going on from Renaissance College right now. Annie Sheehan is with us, so I'm really, I'm quite bullish on Renaissance College. She's doing an awesome job. Awesome. It's really great. I, I think that if you can attract the right students and give them this foundation of leadership where they can then go pair their passion with a follow-on degree or a work experience, it's like a superpower. Being able to work in an area and have leadership skills at an early age is just fascinating. It is a superpower. So how did you, you applied to Harvard to your surprise you got in. I did. Yeah. And how did that decision-making process happen for you? Um, I Well, I, I applied to, I think, four schools, four MBA schools, and everybody told me I was too young, except I think the dean of maybe Ivy wrote, wrote me a personal letter and said, I like your resume, but can you apply in like two years? <laughs> and uh, so rejection, rejection, sort of rejection, and then they just said, we'll just take a gamble on this one. And... Um, and they let me in. I was let in in the third round, which is apparently quite, quite rare. And, and I know you mentioned earlier, Kathy, like I must have felt quite young. I had no idea. I didn't feel young. I just felt confident. I was like, that's my next step. Here we go. Let's rock this. And and of course, it was it was a great experience. It was very overwhelming at times. But, you know, my closest some of my closest friends remain from from that experience. And you're just sitting in a classroom with some of the brightest minds and with the coolest experiences from being Navy SEALs to, you know, radiologists sitting right beside you. And I'm like, I was 21 and they've already got amazing life experience. Um, so they they certainly took a risk on me to let me in. But in a class of 900, there were two of us who came straight out of undergrad. And I had no idea that wow. that was a big deal. Yeah, That's had, a big deal. I had, and I had no idea. Like, I was totally naive and went on to campus and everybody would say, so what did you do before before business school? And I was like, well, my undergrad. Just, what did you do? Like, they, I didn't know it was unique. I didn't have, I didn't have that um, lens or perspective at all. And I've actually had a friend, uh, a friend that, that you know as well, Kathy Holly Hill. She told me, you have this visionary thing going on for you, where you just reach out. And uh, she told me that it was very insightful of her because we actually were talking about our families and our pasts. And and um, because, as, as I mentioned before, I got to have a lot of family in the medical space. And I have my grandfather and great-grandfather were very pioneering physicians in their day. So they would do operations they've never done before because they had no choice. And read about it in a book and then do the best they could with a lot of great success, which is, um, you know, they've made, has, did, have done historical operations in mm-hmm. some cases. So she said, you have this weird visionary pioneering ability that she's like, I don't think you see it, but it's there just the way, the way you think. And so I've always had a bit of a, 
I don't know, a bold, like, let's just go at it. Let's do what needs to be done. Let's solve the problems. Um, but I think she may be right in that there's sort of something just in our, in the family <laughs> genes that have just broken down walls without even thinking about it. Like I didn't think, I didn't even think of how unique it may have been to apply to Harvard at a young age. It never crossed my mind until people well, but, made a big deal out of it. <laughs> but if you're, because of the type of program you did for your undergrad, you had been building leadership skills. So I'm sure you were mature beyond your years. And then you are naive on top of that. And you're fearless at that age too, right? So you add all that combination together and you're sure you're not going to screw it up. Yeah. You're not worried about <laughs> failure. You don't have any responsibility at that yeah. age. <laughs> you just shoot for the stars and see what happens. So as you were taking your MBA at Harvard, talk to me about what was coming up. If you think about where you wanted your career to go, what were those themes that you're landing in that says, this feels right to me. Did that happen? A little bit, a little bit. I didn't find my real niche coming right out of the gate um, for quite a while. And I was always drawn to leadership. I was always drawn to working with people and teams and not afraid to lead, but I was very young. So you don't, you don't expect 20, I would have been 23 when I graduated. You don't expect 23 year olds to come out and take the reins of anything major um, they, they certainly can, but I, w- I wasn't wired like that. I, n- I didn't need to be in the front. I wasn't sort of driven that way. Um, but I knew that I loved working with people. I knew, I knew I loved motivating teams and I knew I loved just very naturally pushing boundaries. Um, so I ended up working, applying and getting a job with Knightsbridge Human Capital Management in Toronto. And they had a leadership practice area and focused a lot on careers and executive search and and assessments of executives and um, I worked for the CEO there David Shaw who was my favorite CEO Um, he just somehow saw potential in me and let gave me all kinds of projects that were way over my head and he just let me learn and let me dig in and let me run a team I was running a P&L with a team of eight maybe six or eight, I can't remember, by the time I was 26. And and I was excited about that. And running it from Germany at some point as well, there was another twist in the, in the story there. But um, so I think just trusting what you're drawn to in terms mm-hmm. of your skills as opposed to an industry or a job, but focusing and leveraging and trusting your skills was a big, and what you enjoy was a big part of, I think, every career move I've made. I always say there's no, I say this to my children and I say it to other girls that I work with, there's no such thing as a bad job in your 20s. When you're 20, you're trying to build some skills and so much is, so much of your development can be attached to the people you work with, like David Shaw, the CEO of that organization. You can fall in love with the work and the environment because of who's mentoring you. So find good people to work with, and then you'll see what skills you want to build. So I just think when you're in your 20s, that's the time to figure that out. Yeah. Stick your neck out. Learn as much as you can. Get pushed around in the wind a little bit and see what feels right. And it takes time. It definitely doesn't happen overnight. But, you know, if if any young, you know, individual coming into their 20s said yeah what would you do and say do it all like say yes to everything there's no like you said there's no bad moves at that point in your career there's no bad moves did you feel a draw to tech because I know when you worked at Knightsbridge you did get involved in the tech side of the business so at some point did you feel it I did yeah and then I couldn't turn back it was like it was like a love at first sight almost (laughs) the um my CEO said, okay, Catherine, I would like you to take this entire career transition practice that we have, and I'd like you to put it online. So it wasn't necessarily uh, a full-on startup, but it had entrepreneurial flavor to it. Um, And just, you know, really digging in, working with tech vendors and providers and the team, I really quickly um, got addicted to how 
quickly you can make an impact with technology, how agile small teams can be and how impactful they are. Like a small team can move mountains in technology. And I could not turn back from that. I loved the speed. I loved it. I was drawn to it and I'm still addicted to it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a lot of what, what even drives me at Propel. Like I love the size of our team. I like how fast we can move. I like how uh, I would struggle in a large organization personally with rules and processes. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not wired that way, but I'm, I love the agility of tech. I do, I've never written a line of code in my life. So it was never from that computer science background or lens, but I had such an appreciation of the power of mm-hmm. individuals with um, computer science degrees and the impact they could make and the importance of communicating between tech talent and business individuals into into a market. So it was fascinating to me. And I was like, I'm not going back. This is it. I've never, I can't work for an organization that doesn't embrace and engage technology as a way to solve the world's problems better, faster, cooler. Um, So, yeah. And that has followed you ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been with a tech company ever since. So talk to me about what brought you to heading over to Europe for a period of time. Sure. So when I was uh, doing my MBA, I met my now husband on a ski trip in Austria. (laughs) And I said to my CEO, you know, it was a little while later, and I told him I was moving to Europe for personal reasons. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to stay with our company. You're going to stay with Nicebridge. I want you to go to Germany and set up a home office. And he did say, you're too young to just develop there on your own. So I want you back here once a month. So again, he had a lot of confidence in me for whatever reason. Um, And I lived in Germany and flew to Toronto once a month for four years. So super jet lagged (laughs) Uh, with the six hour time change. But um, a really great opportunity for me to learn how to lead a small team, work virtually, which is just probably been the majority of my career working virtually. It's not a, as a result of the pandemic. It's, no, it's almost always been that way for me. Um, I love it. I love meeting with teams in person, obviously, but I love the amount of work you can get done when you work virtually and just you really optimize your time. Um, so, yeah, I, I ended up moving to Europe and then and uh, was very fortunate to live in Germany with my now husband and and work with a great organization for a while. And then I ended up eventually leaving that organization to start my own startup, which was a spectacular failure. <laughs> um, and probably one of the most educational moments of my career, uh, educational years, I would say, of my career. And it's where I learned to sell. Like I went to a great school but I'm not, they didn't really necessarily focus on the importance of selling. And man, I had to grind through that as a founder. And it's terrifying. And you you have to give yourself a pep talk every time you pick up the phone for a cold call because you're going to get hung up on. And so that was a really steep learning curve for myself. Um, and and after a year and you're just sort of bleeding cash, uh, I, we shut it down. But it was a good solid year of just pushing the limits and seeing where you forcing a new skill set and then sort of got the hang of it. And now it's one of the things I love the most. I actually coach our founders on how to sell, how to close deals. Was the hardest part the product or solution idea? Or I hear so often when I interview founders, sales is the killer of all things. It's just takes so much skill. But once they get that behind them, they feel like they can just scale, they can grow, they can do anything. It's like it does become a superpower. Absolutely. And I, I think to this day, it's a superpower. And it's, we call it sales, but it is how it is emotional intelligence. It's how you communicate with strangers. It's how you build trust with a stranger virtually. That's got a lot of layers to it to unpack but you've got to be able to connect to a person. Selling is people trusting people in enough to transact money. <laughs> and in order to transact money, you got to build a lot of trust out of, out of thin air. And that takes a lot of chameleon type uh, response behavior. 
and really understanding the problems that they're facing and the, it, can you even solve them? And I wasn't that astute at the time. I'm not, not going to pretend I was, I was that clear on what I was selling as, as a founder. I was spinning my wheels and just trying to keep them on the phone. And, and we landed yeah. a few deals, but we didn't have enough to sustain momentum. Um, but having spent many years after that, really selling and refining your ability to communicate with people. It's all about people. The, the mechanism is always tech for me, but it's all about people and solving problems faster. Did you feel shaken when that didn't happen? Because you'd grown up in a really confident space. You took a brave step, moved to the U.S. for your master's. You moved to Europe. Like you're not really someone who's afraid of taking a leap. So did this knock you back a little bit? It didn't feel, it didn't feel awesome. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to lie and be like, it was amazing to fail and lose all that money. And, um, and I, and I felt, I did feel like as a founder, I'd had enough, ex- I'd had a good education and enough experience to feel like I should have done better because when you take that leap as a founder, and this is for any founders listening who can relate to this. If for me, it felt like jumping into the deep end and I suddenly forgot how to swim. So you're constantly just like trying to keep your head above water and like, oh my gosh, cash flow. Oh my gosh, sales. Oh my gosh, the product's not, oh my gosh, marketing. Like you're just in a bit of a panic all the time and trying to prioritize. What do you focus on? And so it was a really important learning. And I think, you know, I had, I just was lucky and had a great support network and family. I think it was my mom who said to me like, that was probably the most important educational year of your life. And so they didn't, no one, no one pounded on me like, wow, you messed up, <laughs> you failed. And, and it, it's what it was, but I've always been a fan of, you learn probably more out of bad situations than good. So next thing you know, you're heading back to Canada eventually. Did that experience make you want to go back into a small startup? Or were you thinking, I need a little bit more stability in a bigger organization? How did that happen? Good question. So I actually ended up, before we moved back to North America, I joined a a German startup and loved it because I was still drawn to the small, you know, really not knowing what the next day holds. It's full of risk. Uh, I was still very drawn to that. So I joined a startup in Germany. And my favorite part about that experience was, I mean, you just get to see a different, different, how a different startup is run. But I got to sell in German at that point. So that tested my emotional intelligence, my ability to communicate in a second language that I was getting good enough at, but I wasn't a pro. Um, so it takes a lot of guts to do it in another, oh, in a, yeah. another language. So that, that was a lot of fun. And then, um, then our daughter was born. <laughs> so stability, like you said, stability suddenly takes a different toll, different meaning. It's magnified stability trumps all when you become a parent. And my husband is in medicine, so he was a resident. And the path for him was long. Even I met him, I was sad when I met him and he was in medical school because I was like, I know this life. <laughs> it's just, I'm so happy you want to be the doctor and help people, but I know this life. It's, it's different. It's hard. It's, it's hard. Yeah, and it's long. It's long. So I needed to be the stable force for our our daughter and then our eventually our son um so when we moved to my husband got a residency position in newfoundland which i and i know you're from there so i have a warm spot for newfoundland and as we do as well and uh thought yeah i need a i can't do a startup now even though my heart would suggest otherwise i have to have a job so it needs to be in a tech company where i can still get excited and hopefully move my career forward I didn't know if that was going to be an option in Newfoundland, to be honest, because I hadn't been back in Atlantic Canada for years. And it was. Newfoundland's a great place. <laughs> um, so I spent a little bit of time working at Verifin, where I learned a great deal. And then shortly, not I wasn't there too long, but then joined Blue Drop Learning Networks. And that was, you know, offered great stability and great uh, leadership opportunities. And, uh, you know, ended up really enjoying my time there with the great team. So how wonderful was it to get to Newfoundland and realize there was a thriving tech sector? I was super pumped about that. (laughs) It was just like the cherry on top because the only reason we wanted to move, 
I'd never been homesick in my entire life until our daughter was born. And we were close to my in-laws in Germany, and that was really important to us. And the, But the, we did think we wanted the option to move back to Canada. So when the opportunity for my husband came up, we, we don't you don't have a choice in where you go. You're sort of placed in these residency opportunities. So I thought, well, I hope I hope Newfoundland doesn't wreck my career. And it just it helped us soar. It really did. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of great tech entrepreneurs. There's a lot of great action happening within the universities and the Genesis Center. And uh, it was such a pleasant surprise for me that it was, you know, it was a fantastic five years. And our son was born there, so we have a Newfoundlander in the family. <laughs> and to think, you know, the Verifin story, you got to see it earlier on in the stages of its growth and development, but it's a thriving company in Newfoundland and all the other assets that you talked about, like the Genesis Center and TechNL and so many others, it's exciting for the region to have that province doing as well as it's doing. So cheers to Newfoundland. There's no question about that. But you wanted to get back to New, New Brunswick. So you found your path here. Why don't you tell us? You haven't been here that long, but no. let's talk about how you got back here. Sure. So after Newfoundland, there was a year-long stop in Winnipeg first <laughs> um, to do f- for my husband to finalize his uh, training. And then we knew we wanted to be back in New Brunswick to be closer to family. And it's it, it wasn't always clear that that was the path driving us, but I think inherently we knew with with a young family and, and all of my siblings living outside of the province at the time, we wanted to not only be close to my family, but enjoy the lifestyle that New Brunswick has to offer. We, we immensely enjoyed it in Newfoundland, but we were very far from our family. You still had to get on a plane to see your family. So the fact that I can see my parents now in a day, in two and a, two hours and 35 minutes, mm-hmm. that's a win. Yeah. I haven't been able to do that for about 16 years. So, um, it's a, it's a huge one. So it's, it's not only is it, good to be back but it feels like this dream come true and I didn't even know that was my dream that I was aiming for and it's just it's such um it's such an incredible place to live for your career to thrive to have access to anything and everything in sort of a few minutes I don't fight about parking and kids have access to things and you can be in many different cities or even in the U.S. in, in no time at all when the board is open but um, just the lifestyle and the balance that you can achieve here while having a thriving career is, it just doesn't get better than that. So how did you start to think about, I know with the whole residency and finding, you know, the right specialty, all of that stuff is, is pretty important in the medical field. So while that's happening on with your partner and he's doing all of that cool things, you start thinking, we're going to go to New Brunswick. I got to get a job in New Brunswick. So you've had some really awesome experience, Catherine. And how does that lead you to Propel? Yeah, I think, and I would have said, if you had asked me, you know, during my MBA, I never would have said that I would ever follow a man anywhere. And then I met Simon. I was like, oh, crap. And just given his career path and couldn't make any decisions, that it just became very clear that that him and our family uh, trumped and that my career was absolutely important. But I had to go with the flow a little bit in terms of location and with that constant desire to build skill sets, to learn, to have exposure to new markets um that that was my goal until we were in a position to stop moving around and then then say look let, let's see how big of an impact we can we can make one, once we land in our forever home which hopefully we're never moving again um but i was with a med, a med tech company before propel and uh wanting we were looking to do a capital raise and i was reaching out and networking with a few individuals in new brunswick and Barry Bison came on my radar and and uh, he had taught me at UMB. He had taught one course at UMB. He also went to Harvard Business School. So we had connected once or twice on that front. And I reached out just to say, how's it going? Let's catch up. And he shared with me that 
he was retiring and that I should put my name in the hat. And I was like, what? No. <laughs> and it was one of those, those moments that's pivotal for me and my, my career for sure that I, you know, I'll forever be grateful to Barry for, you know, seeing something that I wouldn't have even crossed my mind to apply to propel. And I did. And, you know, interviewed with the, the board virtually hadn't even met, still haven't met most of them. <laughs> and, um, it was just too good to be true as well. When they, they offered me the position, we were moving back because my husband already had a position here and it, the stars just aligned in a pretty great way. So I'm, we, we were all very happy to be home and I, and my husband was excited to start his practice and I was excited, excited to start this role that, that, you know, I'm just forever grateful for with this wonderful team and, and what we're focused on and what we're doing is very, very exciting to me. See, it goes back, I think, to in your 20s, you're meeting professors that you don't know if they're going to come back into your lives. You're meeting CEOs and you don't know. You don't know if some of those people might become investors in a company you're trying to do. And I think it's those skills that you learn at school and a, col- a degree like Renaissance College provide some of that insight so you're probably thinking that Barry guy he might have he might be onto something for me he probably has good insights I love the story it's it's so powerful so when you think about Propel tell me what you think is the magic of Propel and what you're trying to do here in the region for entrepreneurship and you know I, I you know I, what I think about this but we we want this region of the country to grow economically. So tell us a little bit about what your perspectives are a year into Propel. Yeah, nearly a year in September, late September, it'll be a year, which has just flown by. Um, Propel, to me, is this is where founders become leaders. We see visionary, wide-eyed, excited founders talking about their products when they start in our program. And by the time they leave, they are obsessed with their customers and their problems. They are earning revenue from these, what we call the ideal customer profiles. They understand financial acumen, which has a lot of layers. They know how to sell. They understand enough about HR and leadership to make good, important hires at a critical stage in their ventures. And they understand how to think about a tech team. They're all in the ICT space, so they have to understand if I've built a product that's outsourced, let's bring those that IP in-house or let's hire students for a certain part of our growth, but let's hire a mid-level manager to run the tech team. It's always going to be an important part of any tech team's growth. So we help founders at a very important part of their development. I, I often think about Propel as the Montessori school of accelerators. And my son was lucky enough to attend a Montessori school in Winnipeg. And there, it's education for children. The methodology and approach is just a bit different. It sort of re- rewires a child's brain at a very important stage in their development. And Propel does the same thing with founders. It just really takes them from talking about, you know, we turn them from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls and really pumped about their products to really pumped about their customers' problems and how to solve them. So we want to see... Uh, these leaders, when they leave our program, uh, they're very driven to build what we talk about a lot. We talk about baby unicorns a lot. <laughs> and But they're equipped with the skills to take those important growth steps and securing uh, capital. They've all raised on average $1.8 million by the time they leave our program. They've reduced their sales cycles by 78%. They are earning 73% of their revenue from outside of Canada. They have doubled their average contract size while they're with us. They are typically employing on average 6.5 employees by the time they complete a 12-ish month-long program. It, It varies in length depending on where the founder is. But we really want to turn really excited visionary founders into leaders so they're in the driver's seat of their own company and not improvising. They know what they're doing. They know how to raise capital. They know how to solve customer problems. They know how to listen. So much of it, it comes back to our earlier conversation, so much of it is about connecting with people. So how do you do it? Let's 
for those who might be listening, it's not a physical organization. I don't physically go to Propel once a week or Propel once a month. So talk about how you're doing it virtually and talk about your team and the kinds of skill sets that you've got to be able to do this work because those are some pretty impressive KPIs. Oh, yes. Which we're very, we're very proud of and, and excited about. you should about. be. You should be yeah. really proud of that work. Your team should be. Yeah. There, there are secret sauce. Uh, Kathy's our startup coaches. So like you said, we operate completely virtually. That decision was made by Barry and the team in 2018. So we're not virtual as a result of COVID. We did that very intentionally. And it allows us, because we serve all of Atlantic Canada, so it allows us to not only help founders in the Halifaxes of the world, but also in the tiniest towns uh, and communities, one like that, that I grew up in. Um, as long as there's an internet connection, which in most cases there are now, I get that that's not perfect yet, um, then founders can access the support that we believe they need in order to build the right skill set to thrive as a founder and leader. So our coaches are all have all had founder experience themselves, and they meet when you when you join as a founder, you get a dedicated coach. It is exhausting to be a founder, and even navigating where and how do I get help? Who do I follow on Instagram? Which inspiring videos do I watch on YouTube? Like even making those decisions and navigating the help properly is very challenging. So our coaches join the journey with these founders as their guide, as their coach. And it's all about the founder. It's not about our coaches and their journey. They have enough experience to relate to the difficult moments they're in the challenges in front of them, the importance of listening to customers and responding to data. But they're they're really there to focus on the founder and helping them on their growth journey. And it's customized. So we use a Lean Stack uh, content for our, the first course in our program. It's called Vision and Validation. It's called Validation for a reason. Uh, you, the first thing that the founders need to do is validate there's a problem in the market where people are willing to pay to solve that problem. Because if we can't establish that, then you're just throwing away your savings and we want to stop that. (laughs) And so we see that as a success as well. If they validate that there's not a problem in the market that people are with, we we see that as a win. Um, And then they go on to our traction and growth stage. Traction being the, the magic word. And they focus on their ideal customer profile. And we see founders that are so incredibly excited to talk to any customers. So you've got founders talking to like a dozen different customers that are all different shapes and sizes, all buying their products for a different reason. And we really help them to focus. Which one, not all 12, which one can't live without your Your product? product. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to match it up and we teach them how to do that. And that's when we start to see revenue come in. We start to see contracts increase. We start to see sales cycles go down. And our coaches, and we use the GrowthX methodology in the later part of our program, in the traction and growth part. But the coaches are with them every step of that journey. They get to know them. They get to know the blind spots. They can spot when they're spinning their wheels and they jump in and they add another coach. So they connect them with someone to help talk them through, you know, they're just they hit a bit of a speed bump. That, that's going to happen to all founders but the coach helps them navigate through that. Do I have to have a certain size, any revenue to come into Propel? Do I have to have been in an incubator? Just help us understand that just a smidge. Great great question. Where do we start and stop? So we start at the end of the the drunken walk. So (laughs) when founders are excited to start a business and the business is different from one day to the next and then different again, and then in the next 20 minutes, they've changed their mind. Then we're, they're still in really fresh ideation stage. But once they've really narrowed in on, huh, this is a problem I want to solve. Um, it's great to have an MVP product. You do not need revenue to come into vision and validation. But you've got to be able to articulate on a lean canvas, which is the method, the content that we use, uh, what you're trying to solve and how you're going about it. And then to enter the second uh, part of our program, Traction and Growth, they need to have $1,000 in MRR. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's talk about, to finish off a little section on Propel, 
What's your vision for the next couple of years for the organization on, on how would you love to see entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship playing out in Atlantic Canada? I'd like to see us pumping out 100 baby unicorns in three years. And I'd like Propel to contribute 20 of those a year. So graduating 20 leaders who are going to, within their near future, it could be one year, it could be three, that, that's a moving target, but they're going to hit a capitalization event of $50 million, $100 million. So I'm right in, in that zone. We've tried not to define it too tightly to, to discourage anybody, but by talking about baby unicorns, we've had a lot of founders come out of the woodworks and get quite inspired by that. We've had, a, you know, it, with Intro Hive recently in New Brunswick, there's been a lot of great stories recently in our ecosystem to really inspire that movement. And it's important for young founders to see that, uh, that they don't have to be young. They can be just new founders. They can be of any age, of course. But really driving to hit a $50 million, $100 million capitalization event here means a lot for our economy. And I want that to be in enough volume that unicorn hunting is actually becomes a viable sport in the region. You know, we've got a bit of activity with Verifin and sort of a recent IPO um, at the unicorn level, but I'd like it to not be unique one-offs. I'd like it to be a consistent building trend because we've laid the right foundation. It's just a smarter first step and we've got all the right ingredients. So I want us to all rally and focus on skills and, and, and leverage all the different accelerators and networks that we do have in our region, attract talent, open up the doors for capital to flow, so that talking about 100 baby unicorns becomes an easy task, an easy goal to get to. And we're going to certainly do whatever we can to help support our founders to get there. Well, I love the vision. I love it's it, aspirational, but it's also achievable. Like it, I think it has a combination of both with the infrastructure and the ecosystem that's been building here for the past decade and, and then some. So I'm hoping that you want to talk for a minute about how do we get more women founders and more women engaged in this space because it can get a little bit lonely from time to time. So what are you seeing since you've arrived here in Atlantic Canada with the amount of female entrepreneurs and how they how are they doing in the region? I'm I have a lot of hope. I'm very inspired and there's a lot of work to be done. We have when I started, we had about 22% women founders within Propel. Now our recent numbers show 38%. Have we we haven't even doubled it. We're not even hitting 50%. I'm not happy with with uh, 38%, but I'm pleased it's moving in the right direction. Um, no, no doubt about that. There's fantastic efforts, you know, even at the venture capital stage with initiatives like Sandpiper or organizations like Sandpiper who are putting a really clear focus on supporting women-led, women-led ventures. And they're also creating a huge network to, to build a supportive... Uh, inclusive network for all women entrepreneurs at every stages at, at every stage. So, you know, their, their fund will only stretch so far, but their impact is going to stretch much farther because of their laser focus on in this space. I think we need to start early, encourage women to take the leap as a founder in entrepreneurship, even if it's joining a startup, start early and encourage more. Visibility uh, is an important part of that storytelling. I, I don't ever want a woman coming through the educational system in New Brunswick or Prince Edward Island or Nova Scotia or Newfoundland and Labrador to not see herself as running a tech company someday. But if she doesn't have enough exposure to what that future version of herself could look like, I don't want her... I don't want her to not have that dream. I don't want it to not, I want it to be obvious for her. Um, and I think it takes a village. It's not going to be one effort. Uh, I don't, I've always said, you know, I love that Sam Piper's tackling this problem head on. It's not their responsibility to solve it alone. We all have to step up to the plate. I know you're involved with working with high school students and it has to start early. I start with my daughter. She's 
almost eight. <laughs> you know, the, the things I try and expose her to and ensure that she's confident about, and it's, you know, obviously early days, but I never want doubt to enter into her career path. I don't know what she'll decide to do, but I when, want all the options to be there. When you think about your time in the U.S. and Winnipeg and over in Europe, are you seeing any gaps of what's missing here that you think, oh, there's some little components that we need to focus on? And maybe it's not Propel, but it's, you know, this piece of the university or the college school system or the high school system. Is there anything that you think is an obvious miss that, why are we not doing that already? I think there's some Scandinavian company, uh, countries that at a policy level, they're just taking a stance and it's helping. You've got countries like Iceland or, or that they're led by women or New Zealand. And it's not part of as much a part of the discussion there. How do we get to, how do we get to an equitable society in terms of getting more women involved? Well, they've just done it. <laughs> they've made it a rule. So I think if we look at our corporations and I, and I, when I used to travel, Kathy, when I lived in Germany, I traveled back and forth all the time um, from Germany to Toronto and back again. So I had a lot of f- frequent flyer miles and I had to have this vision that I'll never forget. I was in the, the Lufthansa lounge in Frankfurt. So a huge international airport. And I, I didn't take a picture and I should have, but you know what I saw in the business lounge in Frankfurt all white males. Men. Mm-hmm. All of them. Like, I was like, I, I, I'm the only one here. And, you know, it was just, it was so, so singular, the vision that I that I saw. So I think if there are uh, hiring policies, quotas even, um, that, that we can look at, acceptance even at the educational level. Even when I went through Harvard, there was only about 33% women. That's changed. And they've addressed this in the medical field. You know, there's now more women graduating as physicians than men, but they addressed it at an acceptance level. Um, so, so when you look at um, educating talent that can make an impact in our ecosystem, a lot of it is about attracting, attracting the right numbers, accepting the right numbers, and, and are there policy, policies that could be put in place to ensure that there's a balanced approach to the kind of candidates you're letting in your program and therefore graduating. Um, I think it's sometimes a difficult move and it's got a lot of layers to it. So I'm not suggesting it's simple. It sure does. Um, But I think it's important, really important to take a stance early and just make it happen because otherwise you're constantly pushing a rope up a hill, trying to convince people this is a good idea when we all know it is. So I know this is an important issue for you are you sitting back as the CEO of Propel, of a female CEO? Um, are you able to sit back and think, what can Propel do differently so that the founders that are female or minorities or, you know, men or women coming who aren't part of our Atlantic Canadian culture, so all of this is new, are there things that you're thinking you feel Propel can be contributing to help with this problem? I think when we look at our founders and how we can make the most experience, make the best experience for them possible, it's about supporting them and we meet them where they are on their journey. So let's use a few, I'm going to call them hypothetical examples for just privacy reasons. If we have some female founders in our program, and they are strong technically, but they are terrified of fundraising, our response has to be, let's help you build the confidence in that area specifically. It cannot, from our perspective, one size fits all. Coaching doesn't work. It has Mm -hmm. to be about supporting what that founder needs. And, you know, we have got new Canadians. Maybe they're stellar at finance. They've got that inside and out. Their background was in accounting, their CPAs but they're quite nervous about talking to customers, then that's what we have to address. We have to get them over the line. We have to help their blind spots become strengths as much as we can. That's not gonna, it's not gonna be a perfect solution for everybody, 
But being able to talk to customers is going to be how part of how a founder succeeds. So we have to address it very deliberately. The other thing, um, Kathy, that we think about, and I, and I actually don't know the answer to this, and I love finding out the answers. We've got really great data. We have 53% of our founders are new Canadians. I just kicked off a cohort this morning with 16 new founders, and they were from... I was writing it down because I was so excited. They're from China, from Iran, Ecuador, Germany, India, um, Armenia. Like, it's great. And they're living here. So they live in our beautiful region. They are very smart, educated individuals taking this bold move as a founder. So what can Propel do to make sure this 53% of these new Canadians not only has the same chance as everybody else, but let's make sure we're helping them with the skills, the skills gaps that may be personal to them as individuals, one at a time. But we know what a Propel graduate really needs to look like. So we've got a benchmark we're working towards. It's, a, it's our own sort of, it's not a perfect formula for success, but empowering individuals with the skills they'll need is how we need to and do work with our founders. Don't you think you sit back and you go, Lots of people would expect you to probably say, dive into the computer science school and just try and pluck out all those females or all those minorities or all those international students. And they think it's about that technical skill or capabilities. And we got to find more ways just to put people in those programming. And nothing that you just said was that. And it's so real. There's a lot of opportunity. Like like I said before, I've never written a line of code in my life. But I may have some entrepreneurial founder moments still left in my career. Who knows? Um, but I still have a skills gap to fill. I still need, I would need to partner with a CTO, founder. You know, you've, you've, every founder journey is unique. And we certainly recognize that at Propel. Tech talent, there is tech talent, but I think... Um, we could always have more, of course. We can, we've got people wanting to move here with tech talent and business talent. If we can just focus on those individuals and where they already are and supporting them and filling those gaps appropriately, we don't want them bouncing around to a thousand programs or just spending their time applying for grants. Like there's, there's a more productive way to empower a founder. And it's about them and their journey. They're, they're just, Propel does not believe that there's a one-size-fits-all program uh, for, to make a founder successful. So it's, it's pretty custom, but we're seeing great results. If we could finish off in um, just some advice for young women who might be looking to pursue a career in STEM, who sees entrepreneurship and doesn't really know what it is, so is hesitant to go down that path because they they just don't know what they don't know. How would you provide them with some guidance on a path or two forward to consider a career in STEM or entrepreneurship? I would advise them to always listen to the Tech Talk podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Because I think there's so, so much insight and stories that are all across the board in how people have engaged in driving technology forward in our region. So listen to them. They are the living, breathing examples of what can happen here. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. And you know that better than anybody. Um, Because there's there's not enough time to interview the thousands of great uh, individuals and leaders here, but you're, you're, you're doing a great job by shedding light on, on a lot of incredible people. I would also say to young individuals who might think they want to know about entrepreneurship or getting into the tech space, just say yes to everything. Like we talked about earlier, just take a leap of faith. You probably don't have a mortgage when you're young. You probably don't, you may not have children. Maybe you do. It's everyone, everyone's situation looks different, but say yes to getting involved. Learn about product, learn about how the impact of different tech companies, learn about 
customer success. Learn about selling. Learn about how big organizations operate, like IntroHive. Learn about tiny startups that are in Propel that have two and three and then six and then eight people. They operate very differently. And definitely listen to yourself and what are and reflect on what you enjoy. The, the minute you find something you enjoy about the tech space is the minute you're going to get sucked in and you can't turn back. But don't be afraid to put yourself out there to just see what's like throwing spaghetti at the wall. See what sticks. See what you like. Um, and it is the coolest space full of the coolest, most diverse, fascinating, driven, positive individuals constantly trying to solve problems for the world. It's very inspirational. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, which is important. But I think if there's smart individuals who want to take that leap of faith and listen to the podcast and get inspired and say yes to everything and reach out to myself, reach out to people in accelerators who, who spend their careers focused on nurturing this ecosystem. Trust me, they'll try and recruit you in in a heartbeat. And they'll probably know someone who's hiring. I heard six different founders this morning say, I need a person in this. I need a person in that. You got to insert yourself into it with brave gumption. Don't hold back. Nothing will happen except someone might say no. That's the worst. You're totally right. You know, I think I love those answers. Do you do you sit back sometime just from listening to you from for the last hour? And I've talked to you in the past numerous times about your background. Do you not see how your Renaissance College upbringing has led you to this job, Catherine? <laughs> like, it's I'm... so obvious to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I do. Yeah, I just, I love, I love to empower people to do what they're good at. So my job as the CEO of Propel is to get more founders connected with our coaches. That's where the magic happens. It's the coaches that that let that happen. So the honor of the honor of leading that team is, you know, it's a dream come true. But I'm not as, I'm not afraid to leave. Pro, lead probably from Renaissance College. You're right. Well, you talked about your vision of where founders become leaders, and then when you kind of when we peeled back that onion of what happens in the program and what each of the coaches are trying to do and what the programming is trying to do. You know, some people are expecting you to say all this tech, quote unquote, stuff. But you're talking about figuring out the problem, being focused on customer service and what your customers need. And you go down that list and so much is not, it's it's about leadership and being able to see it and then bringing that team together. And that feels a lot about kind of where you've been at for a really long time in your career. So it, it just feels pretty natural to me that this is the <laughs> right place for you and we need you here doing that work right now. So I'm, I'm pretty inspired listening to you and so glad that you're here and uh, doing the work that you're doing. So thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a delight. It is so interesting, some of the similarities of my guests in the past couple of shows. Two, Catherine and Jody are Harvard MBA grads. Two, Catherine and Keith are from Carleton County. All of them are tremendous assets to our region and our tech ecosystem and want nothing more than to see Atlantic Canadian tech companies flourish. I'm so enjoying hearing more about the backgrounds of these guests. It's like peeling the onion as we go deeper into the layers of their curiosity, their passion, vision, and dreams. They're so willing to share their thought leadership and learnings. The leaders in this Atlantic ecosystem are truly amazing. Catherine is passionate about diversity, and we have had conversations about women in STEM and female founders and minorities in tech often in the past six months. She offered some great perspectives surrounding the need to start early to encourage women and young girls, visibility and the importance of that, finding stories like the Tech Talks podcast about the region saying yes to everything and more. It's such great advice for us all. You know, when I reflect about diversity, it takes me to facts and data, and they really matter. 
Let's be sure to understand them and set targets so when we hear facts like Catherine shared on the number of female entrepreneurs growing, yes, they aren't where they need to be, but that's why we're talking about diversity in this series. And she shared data about the growing number of Propel founders that are new Canadians. Let's keep our eyes on these numbers and let's understand other facts like the amount of capital that women are raising and focus on doing what we can to improve those numbers and outcomes. We need big goals. We need big commitments to changing the landscape to have a more diverse tech sector. And we all know we can play a part. It's up to you to decide what role you want to assume, and I hope it's a big one. Thank you, Catherine, for sharing your personal story and journey back to New Brunswick. We are awfully glad you came home. I have a feeling we've got lots to learn from you as you keep diving into this Atlantic tech ecosystem and making your mark. We'll be back with a new episode shortly as we continue our diversity series. In the meantime, to learn more about Propel, go to propelict.com. And as always, all of our podcasts can be found at our website, techimpact.it. Talk soon, everybody.